I'm just going to let you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through this sermon without being a baby, but when we talk about our dependency on God, when we talk about our neediness, when we talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ, when we talk about God's free gift of salvation to us, it, it wrecks me every time. When we sing songs uh, like He Will Hold Me Fast, when we sing songs like Rock of Ages where it's nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross, I cling, it, it wrecks me because I met with the fact that even if I wanted to, um, the gifts that I would bring would be meager. Even if I wanted to, my grip would not be strong enough. And, but on the flip side of that, we serve a God who in his power and in his love holds us. He holds us in a, in a stronger way than we could ever imagine. And he fills our hands. He fills our hands. We don't bring anything, but that doesn't mean our hands aren't full. So um, I hope today, and just really in Romans, I mean, Romans is just going to, it's going to do a lot of good for us just personally and spiritually. I hope, I hope that today, and I hope that as we continue in our study, you're just, you're just ready for what God has for you. I hope you come every week prepared, every week prepared. How do you prepare? I mean, I think you read the Bible throughout the week. I think you're consistent in prayer. I think you're praying for your life. And just like I described our leadership team to you a minute ago, I think you're always willing to stop things that aren't working, always willing to start new things that might work, always examining your life. You can't effectively grow without always examining. And this is not the, this is not the over-analytical like, oh my goodness, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? A- examining every single point of your life. It's, it's looking at the, the macro, right? The macro, your whole life. And look and examining what's working, what's not, what can I do better to be more like Christ. That's how you prep. Just be that person who is self-aware, who examines themselves, who reads the Bible, who prays, who spends time in fellowship with other believers, who seeks other outside sources to grow in Christ. And the Lord is going to do a great work through his word in, in the book of Romans, in the letter of Romans. And so I hope, you, uh, hope you're ready for that. This week we're going to be in Romans 1, 16 through 17, and we're going to talk about a faith unashamed. A faith unashamed. There are ter- very two different stories in my life about how I feel about my family name. And I'm, I'm glad my dad is not here today because I didn't give him, I didn't get permission from him to talk in the way that I'm going to talk. Uh, and it's not necessarily directly about him, but um, this might be a ask for forgiveness later type thing. Um, but there's two ways that I, there are two ways I feel about my family name, the Holbrook name. The first is this, around certain types of people, I don't necessarily make my last name the most prevalent thing about me. And then around other certain types of people, I relish in my last name. Um, I have the question a lot. It actually happened on the phone this weekend with a potential client for Vintage Home Services. Um, Are you related to the Holbrooks at SBEC? And so I can confidently say, yeah, yes, yes, I am. Yeah, I know those people. Um, I don't have to get the sick feeling in my stomach. But I get the, are you related to the Holbrooks a lot, especially in the construction field. I don't know if you know this, but my grandfather and two uncles were, and one still is, in the electrical field. They were electricians, master electricians. And, And so they had a lot of, believe me, there's a lot of crossover with people that I deal with that that they dealt with. And they say, are you related to so-and-so Holbrook? Are you related to the Holbrooks around here? And I was like, well, it depends on who you're talking about is typically my answer. I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a client uh, this past week, and um, we were talking, and um, I don't know how my last name finally got to him. But I said, um, I said, you know, my name is, Holt, my last name's Holbrook. And, and, you know, my uncles were actually uh, in the electrical field. You probably know them. And this guy got like a sort of a sheepish or whatever way you want to describe the look on his face. And you could tell he didn't want to say what he was about to say, but the conversation was already happening. He said, you know, 
<clears throat> your uncle owes me $22,000. And I was, I was like, well, uh, well, it was nice potentially being uh, doing work for you. Uh, I'll, I will see you later. And, and we had a, a good conversation about that. And, and, you know, there was definitely some understanding there. And, and I'm doing the work for him. So evidently he's forgiving or willing to give me a chance. But um, it, there's not, when, when there is a lack of confidence in the family name, it's hard not to sometimes be ashamed. On the flip side of that, I've had a lot of interaction, a lot of positive interaction where someone says, are you related to Deborah? Are you related to Bruce? Are you related to Summer? And even my grandmother is, has passed away, but are you related to Christine? Or Bill, he was a heck of an electrician. He was a good man. I've had a lot of interaction like that. And so there's a level of caution, if not shame, on one side. And there's a level of pride and even willingness when I converse with people about another set of Holbrooks. Now, we can understand where this shame comes from when we look at reputation and history and interaction with others and many other factors. One side of my family or one group of that side has reputation worth loving, where there's another and it's not always worth embracing. And it's important to me because not only do I want you to be proud of me, like, you know, not proud in the unbiblical sense. I want you to like be like, yeah, that's my pastor. I want you to be proud of me. But I also, I, I feel like one of the reasons, one of the like things that I'm trying to do in this vintage home services thing is like change people's minds about like what contractors are. Like contractors are not lazy. They're not addicted to some kind of something. They're not, um, they're not like the not call you back guy, although that sometimes is the case for me. They're not, you know, all of these stigmas that, that contractors have. So it's very important for me that my reputation is one that my children, when I'm dead and gone or when I'm older and somebody knows me, my children can confidently say, that's my dad. That's my father. And they can do it with a smile. They can do it um, not ashamed. Not ashamed. I, if I put my name to something, if I put my, my work and my effort, I don't want people that I love to be ashamed of telling other people that they love me. Much in the same way, we can and should have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of who he is, because of the way he lived, and because he has never done anything in someone else's life, in your life, in my life, in anyone's in this world, that we should be embarrassed about. But Paul here is addressing, in our text today, he is addressing not only confidence in the gospel, but some shame felt by believers of Jesus Christ. I want us to, uh, I want us to, I want to read this first part, this first thrust again, because I think it's important. I've read it for you three times from this area now, and I want to read it again, and then we'll sort of break it down as we go along. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's obviously something that's going on here at the Church of Rome. There, this is not just a random statement from Paul. Paul may have heard or Paul may have dealt with in his history some level of shame. It's said, historically said, not described in the Bible because the Bible doesn't have a tendency of doing this, that Paul was an ugly dude. Like Paul was not a great looking dude. He, that it was said that he had uh, scars and he had a weird walk and maybe he literally had a thorn in his side, who knows. Uh, he had a weird walk and, and he even had, uh, it was described to him having some like facial things like a big mole or something. I don't know. I mean, he would have been popular in the 90s if he had that. But he, but he had some facial thing, something, something like that. But it's, it's possible that Paul personally felt shame or even sort of seclusion from other Christians. And it's possible that he even witnessed that amongst 
other people of faith. And, and when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we confidently say, neither am I. And so we might tend to be judgy or, or wonder how that this church, this early church, especially so, so close to Jesus, um, would be this way. But, but we really need to understand the dynamic of what was going on with those early church fathers. First, most of the Christians were Jewish Christians. Most of those early Christians were Jews. And from their perspective, the Jews were the top of the food chain, right? They were educated, they were law-obeying, and they were religious. And everybody else, most everybody else, was a, they were polytheistic, they were warmongering, they were barbarians, you know. But the Jews were the top of the food chain. They, they, had a, a, they had a religious system, and they had laws, and they obeyed them, and, and they were smart. They were educated. They worshipped in majestic temples with intricate services and form. Now they are basically the outcast of the outcast, rejected and excommunicated by their own people, rejected by the Gentiles who mocked them for the belief that their God came down to them, which was a foreign concept. In a polytheistic society, you had all of these gods surrounding them, but they never came down. The gods were higher. The gods would never condescend like that in the, in the manner that Jesus did. They had likely been cut off from family if part of their family adhered to the Jewish faith, and they were Jewish Christians. They had likely been cut off from family, from revenue streams, and from their ornate and their formalistic worship. Now they were meeting in houses. They were sacrificing personal wealth. The book of, uh, the book of Acts says that um, they had everything in common. They sold their goods so that no one uh, wanted. It was not a self-centered religion anymore. It was, it was one that considered the collective. It was one that considered the, the church. Um, they, were, they were sacrificing wealth and time and freedom, and their life had basically been turned upside down. But not only that, they were serving a God who they'd, many of them had followed for three years. Maybe not, ev- obviously not everybody. Some came in there at the end, but had followed for three years, and then he was crucified on a cross. Literally, from a Jewish standpoint, it's the worst, the worst death that he could have experienced. The worst, most humiliating death he could have experienced. Their savior, their king, the one that they had followed for, for a time, he was gone. And they weren't just supposed to accept that, but they were supposed to celebrate the cross. They were supposed to celebrate the, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus now think about this dynamic for a second. And I don't need to say this, but I will for some of you. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus here. But if you were here in the early stages of vintage, think in your mind how many of you would have stayed if I had just vamped out two years in? How many of you would have st- still been here? Or what about if I had had some moral failure? Or I'd gotten arrested? How many of you would have stayed three years in? Now, these people have been around Jesus one, two, maybe three years. He has died a brutal death. What was their going to be their conquering king, their savior, their Lord? He has been eliminated. Imagine experiencing that and imagine trying not to be sort of embarrassed for what you had done. Shamed even. So Paul's addressing this. Christianity was not promotable at that time. You can promote Christianity a little bit today. It was not promotable at that time. Some people literally, their whole church is about promoting Christianity and never bringing it to people. So Paul is working on that. He's trying to work through this with these people about not being ashamed of the gospel. Not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we know, Christians in that day, Christians in our day, simply they were ashamed. And there are many reasons for that. And I want, us, I want this to lead us to look at two things. I want, it to look, I want to look at today for us, why are we ashamed? The first thing, that's the first major point. And then why we shouldn't be ashamed. And that's the second major point. So I just want to jump right in uh, after a 10-minute introduction. I want to jump right in. Um, why are we ashamed. Why are we ashamed? 
Christians can be some of the smartest people and yet some of the most naive people at any point. We are ashamed primarily, one main, one main reason, because we believe the words of the enemy. One of the reasons we are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we believe the words of the enemy. We can be some of the smartest people and yet some of the most naive. One of the reasons we are ashamed is because we believe the words of the enemy. We believe what he says about us personally. We believe the things he says about the Bible. We believe the way he frames sin. He says to us, we are unforgivable and we believe it. He says the Bible is just a book. It's not sufficient for, for life and godliness, and we believe it. He frames sin to be right, and he frames right to be wrong, and we believe it. He tells us that our beliefs are outdated and on the wrong side of history, and we believe him, and we compromise. He tells us Jesus couldn't possibly have been who he says he was because we don't see anything like that now, or we haven't seen anything like that before. Hello, that's the point of a Savior and a Lord, but anyway, that's beside the point. We, and, and we believe it. Jesus, no, Jesus couldn't be exactly like he said, and, and on some practical level or subconsciously, we believe this. He belittles our faith and says, Jesus was a fairy tale. And we say, I'm not going to believe in childish things. He frames right as wrong and wrong as right. He puts words in our mouth. Even if we believe him strongly, he puts words in our mouth that bring disunity and separation of the greatest spiritual warriors ever accumulated in the history of the world. He tells us that our faith is illogical because science has disproven it. When every major advancement, advancement in science only does more to further the intricacy and the beauty of creation and to prove that there is no way that anything that has been created could have been created without a creator if that doesn't just make logical sense to you. We look at the intricacies of the human body and of the galaxies and all other aspects of creation and it points to a creator, but we are told that it would be crazy to believe that someone or some power could create something in six days and then rest on the seventh. Oh, those six days, they're a thousand years each. So, so there's a thousand years in between, so there was, there was time to develop things. Or honestly, what happened was um, evolution is right, this theory of evolution is right, but it, it was God who started it. He was the, he was the catalyst. Because taking God at his word is just too easy. So we eat it up. And instead of knowing and fighting for truth, we cower down and we, listen, this is important, we project our inadequacies on God and his word. On a perfectly self-sustaining and self-defending gospel. Friends, we must trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do not allow the words of the enemy to corrode our belief, our faith, and our trust in God. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is a deceiver. He is a thief of peace and joy, among other things. He is the accuser. He is an enemy. And he is, and the worst part about it, he might even come as an angel of light, making everything wrong look clean and right. He is crafty. He is a stumbling block, and he never fights fair. He attacks when you least expect it, when things in life are going well, when it seems like life is on track when you think you can handle it on your own. Be aware, stay vigilant, put on the full armor of God, and fight the good fight of the faith. Stop believing the easy lies of the enemy and trust in the full, proven, and given gospel of Jesus Christ. We are ashamed because of the, the lies of the enemy influence us, and then the culture only confirms that, and we lose ground when we give ground that has already been staked, that has already been won, that can never be lost. We project our inadequacies on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we say, the gospel can't be exactly how Jesus says or God says. 
We're ashamed because we believe the lies of the enemy. We're ashamed because of what the Bible says about God. We are ashamed of the gospel because of what the Bible says about God. As much as you might disagree with this or it pains you to hear, we are ashamed because of what the Bible says about God. The Bible does not paint the picture of God that we would like often or many seeker-sensitive people would like. The Bible says that God is a God of wrath, that He hates sin, that those who do not belong to Him are not His friends, they're not His loved ones, but His enemies. That it requires holiness and a behavior and an attitude like His to follow Him. That there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. That no man will come to the Father except through Him. That one day He will return to judge the living and the dead, and all of those who don't know him will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It doesn't paint a lovey-dovey picture that many are accustomed to that would be easy to fill the pews or the chairs of a church gathering. But it is the truth of the gospel. And we shy back, (coughs) excuse me, and we take it from the world because we don't want to truly believe that the God of the Bible is exactly the way he has described himself. We are ashamed of what the Bible says about God. And it is such a shame because what we find out from Paul is that the gospel is the power of God. And if you try to take one ounce of that away, then you don't live a life of victory. And you don't live a life of power. And then you sit there searching and looking around and asking God why there is such a lack of power in your life. You ask God, why are you always flailing and failing? And it's because if you give up an ounce of the gospel, you give up on the power of God for your life. It isn't the lovey-dovey picture. The God is love and accepting everyone picture. It's a draws a line in the sand picture. And it causes us to have to tell people and ourselves that we are wrong and that we are sinners and that we are needy. That we are not as close to God as we thought we were. That we are really dependent on Him and that we better repent. That means change our mindset. Change the way we were going. We better surrender. When you talk about repentance and surrender in most evangelical churches, it is cringeworthy to people because they are so unaccustomed to those truths. Often, friends, we who are part of a church that discusses it regularly are so unaccustomed to those truths that even when we speak it to our friends, even when we're proclaiming the gospel to those who need it, it's kind of like, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're just backing away, and we're just cringing away, and we're sort of just half-heartedly bringing forth the power of God. There is embarrassment in being the one to break the news. But if we learn, follow, and trust in the gospel appropriately, we can be the people who plant the seed and watch the growth of the effective power of the gospel. The reward, friends, of rescuing someone whose toes are being licked by the flames of hell far outweighs the potential embarrassment of telling someone who God actually is. Often we are ashamed because of what the Bible says about God, even to the point where we choose not to believe it, at least even on a practical standpoint. We may live practical, practically moral lives like Paul did. We may do spiritual things that are good for society as a whole, but we don't practically, if we don't practically believe what the Bible says about God, there is a level of shame in our life about the truth of God. We are ashamed because of what the Bible says about God. We are ashamed because of what the Bible says about us. We are ashamed because in the gospel we find out that we are not so great. We are not so self-sufficient. We are not so high and mighty. As a matter of fact, Paul spends the next two and a half chapters discussing our desperation and our need. So get uh, get ready to be lifted up the next couple of weeks. We like to think one of two things, or sometimes both, that God chose us because he found something favorable in us, 
or that through endurance of character or strength or will or maybe even intelligence that we found God. And yet the truth is this. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were stinky, rotten corpses, unable to move, unable to think, unable to do anything to earn the favor of God. This is hard to stomach in America because we live in a land of opportunity. And the story goes like this, and I believe this to a degree, that if you work hard, if you're diligent, if you do what you can, then you can be successful. But the story of the gospel is, if you work hard and you're diligent and you do what you can, you will still fail if you do not rely and trust in the power of the gospel through Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit of God. It's hard to stomach for people who have been moderately successful in this world by doing things on their own. So when we have to look at the Bible and see what it says about ourselves, what the gospel says about our need, we may have a tendency to be ashamed. Listen, this this is not the people I know. I know a lot of good non-Christians. I know a lot of good non-Christians. They're doing a lot of good things. You know what the Bible says about that? It's, it's nasty, and you're going to be ashamed of it. That which is not done by faith is sin. Every work, you need to hear me, okay? You need to hear me, because this is going to be gross to you probably. Every work done outside of gospel context, outside of the power of Jesus Christ, is sin. Every work, even if it is good work, even if it is good work, love cannot be full love. Hope is not full hope. Work, even works of, now now listen, you have to hear me. I'm not saying that like every work is necessarily like unfruitful because we see some non-gospel work that is very fruitful. But to what end? To what end? If you give to the poor, but you don't have love and you don't have Christ, to what end is it fruitful? Feeds a man for a day, feeds a man for a month. Does it change his life? Does it help the destination of his soul? So it's from that context, from the fact that every work that is done outside of Christ, outside of the gospel in mind, is sin. Outside of faith is sin. What have we done if we've done good things for people on earth, but we have not given them the hope of glory? We're ashamed. That's a a hard thing to stomach. That's a hard thing to repeat. You know those things, uh, and Blake has said it, and I've said it, those things like, this is probably not something I would say from the pulpit. You know, well, I have less of a discretion than Blake does. Blake's a lot kinder than I am. This might be something that you probably wouldn't say from the pulpit. Maybe you talk about it in person, but, but you, we need to know it. We need to know it. I mean, there are some, if you're not ready to accept the power of God and just say, I'm ready for whatever he has, those things are hard to stomach. We can be convicted about what the Bible says about us, but we can't, it can't let it lead us to shame. Now, I'm not sure this is an exhaustive list, but I think this gives us a good start for diagnosing why we might feel some shame or some other feelings, whatever you want to call it, um, as it concerns the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why shouldn't we feel shame? That's the second major point. Why shouldn't we feel shame? Under that, why shouldn't we feel shame? Because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, this is an interesting thought here that we must distinguish, okay? This is, if, you, if, you, if you're not paying attention right now, you might miss this whole next section. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is not about the power of God. It's not just some power greater than our own. He isn't saying that the gospel is the power that we can attain to help save ourselves. The gospel is not a channel that God uses to operate his power. The gospel is the power 
of God. Now you may wonder why this is important, and I want to tell you. I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was important. Because when the gospel of God saves us, when we actually come to Jesus, it is the direct working of the power of God on our life. It is the visible working of the power of God. It is not Jesus plus us equals salvation. It is God's direct power in saving a wretch like me, in quickening my spirit, in raising me to life. You know why else, why else we should distinguish this fact? Because as we grow in sanctification, it isn't our will and determination plus the power of God. Our sanctification is a result of the effective power of God taking hold in our life. Friends, it's an important distinguishing mark because here's why. When we are walking with Christ, we are showing the world the power of God. When we are walking with Christ, we are revealing to the world that Jesus is alive. It is the power of God, not a power, not a helpful power, not a representation of that power, but the power. When we're saved, when we're growing in Christ, we are showing people that we are not just walking for some dumb faith. We are not just following some dead God, some easy believism sort of way. We are not following some other religion, but we are following the God of the universe and His power can be seen most prevalently when He saves people and when He makes them more like Him. Our sanctification is a result of the effective power of God taking over our life. When we grow in sanctification, we consume that power and we demonstrate the power of God. You know a third reason we need to distinguish that the gospel is the power of God? Because when you proclaim the gospel, you are not just proclaiming a message about God or about the power of God. When you proclaim the gospel, if the gospel is the power of God, then you are bringing forth the power of God to the world. It's very important, friends, to know that you wield the power of God, not a representation of the power of God, because when you share the gospel, you know that it's not about you, but the power that you hold in your hand through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God. It's not a power of God. It's not about God. It's not a channel with which we can know God. It is the power of God. And when we are saved, when we are sanctified, and when we share the gospel, all of those moments, the world sees clearly that Jesus is alive. If for a a moment, when we proclaim the gospel, we grasp and release the power of God to the world, And this is why lives are changed, because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel, people are not changed by your words. People are not changed by your eloquent speech. They're changed because the thing that you bring them is God's power itself. Not moralism, not behavioral modification, not hiding sin, but the gospel. What good would it do to preach morality at a funeral home? What good would it do to preach morality in a graveyard? All right, all of you dead bodies, let me tell you how you can live better lives. What you need to preach at a graveyard is how to get life, not better lives. Because the people in the graveyard are dead. And they need life. And that's the condition that God states that we are in. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we don't need to learn how to live better lives. We need to learn how to get life. And we only get life through the power of God, which comes in the power of the gospel. There are a few things when we see that we see about the power of God as it comes, as it takes effect. And I want to see those today. The gospel is the power of God. Look at this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power unto salvation. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It takes the power of the gospel, friends, to get Saul to Paul or to get Bryce to where he was, to where he's going. Do you think Paul would have risked his life if, uh, if, he, had, uh, if he was thinking that Christianity was a religion founded on the abilities and the schemes of sinful man? 
There were countless schemes of salvation throughout history. Self-help programs have been existing in the world for as long as humans have been around. You think Paul would have risked all that he had for a self-help program? For a faith developed by human hands? Do you think the disciples would have stayed around after Jesus died? You know what they would have done? It reminds me of the story of David and Goliath. We've got these Philistines, and they're like beating their chest for nothing, for no reason, for no reason. They're not doing anything. They're beating their chest. Look at us. And it's Goliath that's standing out in the forefront. It's Goliath that's standing out in the forefront. The rest of the Philistines are beating their chest. And then David slays Goliath, and what do the Philistines do? Okay, I'm gone. I'm out. I'm out. See, the same, and this is not exactly a parallel representation, but the same thing applies here. If Jesus, if the, the disciples, when Jesus was on earth, they were beating their chest. They were like, this is our God. He, this is the one. This is the Savior. Look at us. If the disciples, now we see a moment of it with Peter. We see a moment of Peter. But Peter comes back even stronger. If the disciples had believed that they had formulated this religion on their own, if they had not believed that Jesus and his gospel is the power of God, when Jesus died in the way that he died, they would have run. But what happens instead? The opposite happens. The opposite happens. The faith grows, and it is still growing. Jesus says that the disciples and through, current, uh, through subsequent disciples will do greater works than even he did in his short time on earth because the faith grows through the power of God in us. These people would not have given up everything. They would not have been murdered in such a way if they thought the religion that they were following was something that they developed or they formed. Later in Romans 8, Paul says, What the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man and as a sin offering. That we might not live according to sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The gospel is the God, uh, the, excuse me, the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power unto belief. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power unto faith, unto belief. What is faith? Faith is simply this. It's simply opening your hands to receive the righteousness of God. It's simply opening instead of saying, I'm good, bro. I'm, look, I've got all these works, all these things that I'm juggling and that I'm holding on to. I'm good. It's opening your hands to receive the righteousness of God. It is like Paul said, from first to last, or from faith to faith. What he is saying is this. It is the righteousness of God from faith to faith. What he's saying is this. Your faith, your beginning is about taking on the righteousness of God Your middle is about taking on the righteousness of God. And your glorification is about having the righteousness of God. Faith is about taking on the righteousness of God. It's hard to describe, though, if you're trying to put it more than that, right? I found this helpful. I found this helpful, and maybe you can, uh, maybe you find it helpful too. Faith is described in the acronym CAT, but it's K-A-T. So that's not like anything special. It's just... Maybe you can remember, oh, cat, oh, cat with a K. There you go, K-A-T. This is not something I came up with, so don't make fun of me if you don't like when people do that. K-A-T, cat, knowledge. Faith is about knowledge. Not just an attitude or of mind or will, but an involved, objective content. Knowing that all the wonderful things we know about God's gospel, faith is based on objective truth. It's not blind Okay? It's based on objective truth. Assent. Knowledge, assent. Faith is about assent. <clears throat> this is letting your heart be touched and moved by what your head already knows. The knowledge you have has to mean enough to change you, to take hold in your life, to take that faith as yours. And then trust. Trust. Eventually, Jesus must go from being a savior. Sometimes quickly, sometimes it takes more time. A Savior or someone we know about to being our Savior and our Lord. I, can, I think of this trust like this. When I was uh, several years back, and I'm sure you've all seen this, but 
uh, I can take Emmeline and I can hold her up in one hand and then she'll say, we'll say, put your hands up and she does like a little cheerleading thing. Not because we want her to be a cheerleader or anything like that, but it's, it's just cool. Well, so Bennett and Ellie saw that and they wanted to do it. And Ellie is not big, but she's a little bigger than Emmeline. And so I'm trying to like struggle to get her up and, and she's holding onto my neck for dear life. She's like choking me out as I'm trying to get her up, right? So I'm like, I said, Ellie, you have to trust me. You have to trust me if this is going to work. If you straighten your legs and you trust me, I can hold you up. She's choking me. You have to trust me. Okay, so she's choking me on the top of my head now at this point, not around my neck. Ellie, you have to trust me. She grabs onto my hair with one hand. You have to trust me. You have to trust me. She lets go and puts her hand on top of my head. You have to trust me. She's, you have to trust me. Okay. Okay. Faith is going to where we take our chokehold off of our good works. Right? We take our chokehold off of what we were holding on to. We, we release the grip of the hair. We take our hand off of the top of the head. And we trust. We straighten our legs. We stand in the knowledge of God and we trust. We know it. It affects our heart. It changes us on the inside. And then we trust. We trust. There's one other area of the power of God that I'd like to discuss with you today. And that is the power of imputed righteousness. The power of the imputed righteousness of God. The righteousness, this type of righteousness is mentioned over 60 times in Romans. The power of salvation is the Holy Spirit bringing a dead person to life. It is the quickening of the heart. The power of belief is when the power of the gospel takes a person from just knowing about God to being changed by God and trusting in God. We call that saving faith. And it is saving faith that activates the revelation of the righteousness of God. It is saving faith that lets us see that our salvation is of God, from God, and through Jesus Christ for our, to pay for our penalty, bearing our penalty. And more than that, it is God brushing aside our insufficient righteousness and giving or imputing his righteousness to us this means whereas our bank account was empty even if it feels full our power is weak even if it feels strong the gospel fills us with the power of god and it fills our account it fills us up with works and goodness and the power of god through jesus christ and in the holy spirit paul says look I have as much reason as any of you to think that I had sufficiently taken care of this religion thing. I was a Jew of Jews. Philippians 3, and you don't have to turn there, but Philippians 3, starting verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision <coughs> who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have, have had reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That means I, he, they followed Jewish customs and Jewish laws of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was born into a Jewish family. He had been circumcised according to Jewish uh, customs. He was, pure, he was a pure-blooded Jew. He was a Pharisee, which was the strictest and most faithful Jew. He saw himself as a faithful, he saw himself as faithful for, for persecuting this false religion led by this false God, Jesus. He saw himself as faithful for doing that. But then faith in Christ brought him to this realization. That everything he inherited, everything he had earned under the law, everything outside of Christ could not compare. It could not fill his tank. And this is why later on in that chapter, verses 7 through 11, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The imputed righteousness of God. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that only comes through God. Earlier in Romans, he says it is the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation. Understanding the imputed righteousness of God is understanding that nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And if a sufficient righteousness is to be found, it is only to be given to us and to cover us, or, and is only to be given to us and in, we, when we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If we will be held fast, it will be because Christ holds us fast, because the gospel is the power of God. Under salvation, under sanctification, and under glorification. I want to give you this really quickly and we'll be done. A little second point, and I will not spend as much time as I did on the first point. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is this. Where there once was hopelessness, where there once was flailing and trying and failed effort, there is now hope. The gospel is good news. What does Romans, what does the rest of that say? Is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is good news. It's good news for everyone, he says. And then he distinguishes who he's talking about. The gospel is good for everyone, the Jew first and the Greek. And listen, I have a tendency to, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but I have a tendency to follow reform, reform theology. I have a Calvinistic lean. I don't know if you knew that about me. If you didn't, I'm sorry, but I try to make that um, uh, as, as, as common as possible. And, if, and if, it bo- if you don't know what I mean, we can talk about it later. If it bothers you, open your Bible, and we can talk about it later also. Um, but but here's, here's the deal. I follow a Calvinistic or Reformed lean. And people always look at verses like this, and they say, the gospel is for everyone. And that's it. But we don't look at the next part. He says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Friends, I want to give you a, a brief explanation of almost exclusively what that means when you see it in the Bible. When you see for everyone, when you see for the whole world, what it is saying is, the one God had an exclusive crew. And you had to join that crew like you had to be a Jew. You had to convert. You had to commit. The gospel was not for everyone. Through Jesus, the gospel comes to God's people and the gospel comes to the Gentile also. The gospel comes to the Greek. We know that at most, at at the least, the, the Bible is confusing if it is claiming that everyone is going to be, everyone has an equal standing with God. Because what happens? We know that people die and go to hell, right? We know that that doesn't happen. It's confusing at the least. What this means is all people groups everywhere. All people groups, all people everywhere. The gospel is for them. All people groups everywhere, to the Jew first and then the Greek. And here's the most important thing. God in his omniscience, in his power, he did not withhold the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that not only God could have withheld it from us on a personal level, but he could have withheld it in general? He was right to say, nobody can be saved from this hell that they've put themselves in. He is right to say that. He is right to judge and say no one can be saved. But guess what? Paul says the gospel has been revealed to us. The gospel has been given to us. It has been revealed. It, it may go 
unseen, or it may go not understood through if we just pass it by. But the truth is that God, even in His grace, decided to let us know about this good gift. He didn't withhold it. He didn't say, He didn't wrap this big present and put it over to the side and say, Look at this gift I have. Here it is. It's yours. It's yours. It's good for salvation. It's good for faith. And it's good for righteousness. When we turn away from who we were, we repent. We grasp onto who God is. Give me what you have, Lord. All of this in my hands, I get, I get rid of it because I've tried with it and I'm I'm either not good at it, I don't know how to work it, or whatever, but it's not working. Give me what you have. And it's just opening your hands to receive the righteousness of God. What a story. What a story. So I have to ask one question to you today, and we'll close today. Does your life Reflect the effective power of God. Does your prayer life reflect the effective power of God? Does your commitment to your church reflect the effective power of God? Does your commitment as a husband or a wife, as a father or a mother, reflect the power, the effective power of God? I know that we're going to feel defeated at times, friends. I know that we're going to feel left. We're going to feel lonely. And there's going to be times we're going to look at a Bible verse and be like, ah, how, do, how do we do this one? How do we work through this one? You have the power of God in you. We have the power of God in us. Church, we should always be rolling because there should be enough powers of God in here to keep us going. And there should be enough powers of God in each individual to lift the other up when he can't. Pray with me today. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it is most seen when we display the power of God through our salvation, through our sanctification, And one day, through our glorification. Lord, would you allow us to grasp this power, this gospel power? Would you allow us to take hold of it so that we may be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world? (coughs) That we may consider the condition of mankind more than we consider the embarrassment that we might face by having to put ourselves out there to share the gospel, to be proclaimers of Jesus. God, we love you, we praise you, we give thanks for who you are and what you're always doing in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.